Welcome to Let It Locate, Laura John Let It Locate. Quantum mechanics and the theory of relativity were once hotly debated newcomers to the science of physics. Now, some students learn about them in high school. Most of us, however, will rarely hear much more than a science fiction version of them or a punchline like, everything is relative. What, what is the, the view of the world that physics provides, and how has that view evolved in the centuries since the development of quantum mechanics and relativity? In his latest book, The World According to Physics, University of Surrey Professor of Theoretical Physics and Chair in the Public Engagement in Science, Jim Al-Khalili, surveys the uh, pillars of what many consider the foundational science, how that science un- underpins much of modern technology, and how it is contributing, uh, continuing to evolve. It's published by Princeton University Press in this country, and I'm very pleased that it brings Professor Al-Khalili to our show now. Welcome. Hello there. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You characterize physics as a fundamental science. Does does fundamental mean that physics explains everything as opposed to biology or chemistry or economics, if you consider economics a science? Uh, uh, No. I mean, I I think we have to make that distinction that uh, physics isn't going to explain uh, the humanities. It's not going to explain economics. It's not going to explain, you know, human behavior. Uh, certainly, it, it won't even explain the, the, the complexities of life. By fundamental, I simply mean that the physical universe, you know, you explain life. How does, you know, if you break life down to the molecular scale, you're, you're talking chemistry. If you, if you break chemistry down to what's happening, it's atoms interacting with each other, you get to, the, get to physics. So physics, in a sense, is the, the, the basic, most, the sort of fundamental area of the physical universe, the building blocks of all the stuff that we have around us, ultimately is down to the laws of physics. But, you know, you're not going to use it to explain uh, uh, human behavior or anything like that. Or the latest uh, scientific issue. Science, uh, physics may be fundamental, but hasn't biology become the dominant science because of things like COVID-19 and fears about it? Uh, uh, In many ways... uh, Research, uh, the research into that is is uh, relevant on a very basic level. What about the research yeah. in physics? How much does that affect us? Is that less obvious? Well, I think physics, uh, what we're seeing increasingly these days is that a lot of areas of science are merging. We talk about a lot of interdisciplinary research. So looking at sort of the, the coronavirus, COVID-19, as a good example right now because it's just so in the news, uh, the, the researchers working in that field trying to understand this virus do come from lots of different areas. Of course, you've got a, the epidemiologists trying to predict how it's spreading. You've got the virologists, the geneticists trying to understand its structure. You've got the medics trying to develop vaccines. But you also even have computer scientists and, and AI experts trying to um, use AI to understand you know, the, the molecular structure of this virus. Physics plays a role in, in all these areas. Uh, and I think when you look around the world today, you know, so much of our technology relies on an understanding of the physical universe. You know, without quantum mechanics, as a, as a rather esoteric example, as you, you said in your introduction, we wouldn't un- have modern electronics. So we wouldn't have computers. We wouldn't have the Internet. We wouldn't have smartphones, you know, because they all rely on the physical understanding of how atoms interact. So it's not always obvious how when someone's doing physics research, how that's going to change your average Joe's life. But it does in many ways. Well, quantum mechanics also uh, presents all sorts of uh, things that seem highly counterintuitive. For example, uh, that um, uh, an electron can be in two different places at the same time. It's still hard for me to grasp that. Hey, uh, you and me both. (laughs) I've been working as as a quantum physicist for for over 30 years now, and it still gives me a headache. In a way, that's sort of what I find fascinating about it. It's it's not obvious. It is counterintuitive. And sometimes, you know, when we try and popularize physics, you know, as I I do in my book, we're only really scratching the surface. You know, we talk, as you say, we talk about atoms being in two places at once or, you know, cats in boxes being dead and alive at the same time, (laughs) two separated particles on opposite ends of the galaxy in instantaneous communication and quantum teleportation. A lot of these areas do sound 
like this. They've just come straight, straight out of science fiction. But the quantum world, the world of the very small, the world of atoms and below, does behave very, very differently from our everyday world, everyday senses. We've developed the mathematics. We have a theory that works, that's helped us develop so many technologies. But yeah, at its heart, we still haven't figured out what is actually going on. Maybe we never will do, but that's not going to stop us trying. Richard Dawkins wrote about the, quote, magic of reality and the God delusion. Do you share his view that some ways many people believe reveal the truth in, in fact, obscure it? Um, I, I wouldn't go as far as Richard Dawkins. I'm, I'm also personally not religious, but I think uh, we should separate what, how we can um, explain the physical universe uh, and, and phenomena out there in nature, and then what a, a spiritual belief means on a personal level to people. Um, you know, physics is not going to prove or disprove the existence of God. It's, it, they're, they're not, they don't sort of mix with each other in, in that sense, uh, and, and which is why, you know, I know a lot of scientists who, who are religious and have a, a faith that's important to them. Um, so I, I wouldn't I wouldn't be quite as crude as to use the rationalism of science to bash religion over the head with. I know there are certain areas where they do come into conflict, you know, evolution theory maybe for some people or the Big Bang, cosmology and so on. But by and large, uh, I, I think if you want to have a spiritual belief in a higher power, that doesn't necessarily mean that it obscures some some sort of truth about the physical universe. You can you can probably you can live with both. Well, we have the the concept of the prime mover going all the way back to the Middle Ages. Right, so that's a way of explaining mm. it, if you wish. But how well? Indeed, indeed. How, how well do the educational systems in the United States and the UK do in giving young people a basic understanding of physics or the sciences in general? Are they taught in a way I, that can discourage many from pursuing further study? Because uh, I, I have to tell you, uh, I only took physics in high school because I absolutely had to. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is true. It's a shame, you know, when, you know, when I, you know, I give sort of you know, public talks or, 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 or interviews or write articles, people say, oh, if only you were my physics teacher when I was back in high school, I wouldn't have dropped science. <laughs> and, uh, you know, in a way, yeah, you do have to do sort of the nuts and bolts stuff. You know, you do have to sort of bunts and burners and test tubes. You've got to sort of roll balls down incline planes and springs and things. And none, none of that is really exciting like the stuff you might see in a sci-fi movie. Um, so, yeah, I think maybe we should be f sort of f sprinkling some of the basic science, the physics, the chemistry, biology, which you have to teach kids. You know, they have to learn the, 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 the basics, but maybe show them that, you know, there's more to it. There's, there, there are other exciting, exotic areas that if you stick with science, you might have a better appreciation of. And also teach kids, I think for me, I think what I find very important is we have to teach people how science works. I mean, I, I try and do that in, in the last chapter of my book. Hmm. Uh, I call it Thinking Like a Physicist. How do you know what you know about the physical world? How, how can you tell that the Big Bang happened for 14 billion years ago? You know, it's so this, you know the, the way we develop theories, the way we test them against experiment and observation, how, how, you can, how you should have doubts about what you believe, how you should be prepared to admit mistakes if you go wrong. There's no, you know, no shame in that. So how we do science, I think, sometimes should be taught just al alongside the actual information, the science itself. Because uh, in the case of, of uh, physics, you often have an equation uh, predicting something, and later we can prove or disprove it um, through uh, empirical tests. Uh, the, 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 so what often happens is people suggest, come up with an idea, and then, uh, like with Einstein's theory of relativity, a bunch of people go out there and check out eclipses and say, oh, yeah, it's absolutely true. Very often it happens that way, but, but also, you know, the, the original equation that some, an Einstein or anyone will come up with also doesn't just come out of the blue. Um, sometimes it can develop from beautiful mathematics, and a lot of theoretical physicists uh, have argued over the years that the universe speaks the language of mathematics, 
and and there's beauty in 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 the laws of nature and so if your maths if your equation looks neat and and a beautiful equation is something <laughs> well, aesthetic you know you have to understand the the, the greek symbols to actually appreciate the beauty um haven't i heard some scientists to, to say something. that the equation the the math wasn't wasn't beautiful so i don't believe it yeah i mean i i personally don't don't uh, so follow that. There be, certainly, there have been successful examples of that. The, the English physicist Paul Dirac said, you know, if, if your experiment result conflicts with my beautiful equation, go away and do the experiments again, because, you know, my equation is too beautiful to be wrong. <laughs> but, but, uh, but, it, but even Einstein, you know, you know, when he developed his first theory of relativity in 1905, that wasn't just because he, he came up with a pretty equation. In fact, there were others before him that actually had come up with the math with the equation. They just didn't understand it. Um, and even that was based on an experiment that people couldn't understand. In the late 19th century, people were trying to understand the nature of light and how it travels through empty space. And, they, and two American uh, uh, physicists, Michelson and Morley, developed an experiment which no one could understand. And so that tells you that the way you think about the universe must be wrong. That leads physicists to develop the mathematics and come up with an equation that might explain the experiment. Then Einstein comes along and says, actually... Your, your equation is right, but your explanation is wrong. Here's the correct explanation. And he talks about, you know, nothing goes faster than light, E equals MC squared, and so on. So it's experiment that prompts theory and mathematics that is then tested against later experiments for confirmation. And if it, and if it turns out it doesn't agree with the experiment, you have to ditch it and come up with something better. I want to get into the whole matter of the speed of light and and related uh, subjects a little later in this conversation. But I'm curious about you. What grabbed you about the sciences when you were first introduced to them? Weren't you born in Iraq? Uh, were you introduced to the yeah. sciences there? Um, yes, yes. So my, my background is my mother's English. Uh, my father's from Iraq. He was studying over in, in Britain. He was studying engineering in the 1950s. And he met my mother. She was a librarian. Uh, and she said, I, sh I always wanted to meet a, a tall, dark, handsome stranger. Well, he's, he's, uh, he was dark, handsome, and a stranger, but he's only five foot two, so oh. he, wasn't, he didn't satisfy the tall. <laughs> but, but um, yeah, they married, they moved back to uh, Iraq. I was born in Baghdad, and we used to come over to, to England uh, on a regular basis to visit my, my maternal grandparents. But yeah, I did all my schooling in Iraq, although we spoke English at home, as my mother tongue. I did. Um, I, I did my schooling in Arabic until my mid-teens. Um, the education system there was pretty much, you know, it covered the, the standard stuff. So I did physics and chemistry and biology, and I must have been about, I guess, about 13 or so, 13 years old, when I realized physics was the subject for me. I, I, you know, in, in Iraq, in, in the summertime, it's so hot that you, you, you sleep on the roof. So there comes a time in sort of like May time where you, you get all your bedding, put it up on the roof, and you sleep up on the roof because it's cooler. And I remember laying under a mosquito net, just looking up at the stars and wondering if space goes on forever, what, what are stars made of, and so on. And then I realized that physics is a subject that could help me answer some of those questions. And from that moment on, that was it. You know, I wanted to be a professional soccer player as well, mm -hmm. and a rock star, and, <laughs> and an astronaut, obviously. But in the end... Studying physics was, was the thing that, uh, that uh, lasted with me, and I've been in, in love with it ever since. You're, you're a chair in the, the public engagement in science. You have a specialty mm. within the broad subject of, of physics? Uh, yes. So I, my, my uh, PhD is in, in nuclear physics. So I did uh, theoretical nuclear physics, so studying the structure of the nuclei of atoms uh, and, and essentially quantum mechanics. Uh, and that's what, over my career, I've published most of my academic work on. Uh, and I continue to divide my time between an academic physicist. You know, I teach uh, a freshman course on relativity. Uh, I have my grad students. I'm doing research with them. And, and all of that, the university duties, is, is like half of my time. The other half of my time, I'm what you'd regard as a public scientist. So uh, the, the, the equivalence of people like me in the States if you know them, will be certainly people like Neil deGrasse Tyson, Brian Greene, uh, in, in also who's at Columbia, mm -hmm. um, people like Lawrence Krauss and, and uh, Michio Kaku. Uh, they are popularizers of physics, but they're also academic scientists in their own right. Michio Kaku has done radio shows on the radio station you we're talking on right now. 
Right. Uh, okay. Okay. Good. My guest is Jim Al Khalili. His uh, latest book is The World According to Physics, small book with a lot of information in it. Um, you, uh, do you find that uh, people with no background in the sciences can sometimes ask questions that physicists are still debating? Because uh, aren't some physicists mm. still debating the meaning of, of some of the key ideas of, of quantum mechanics and, and other key uh, aspects of modern physics? Yeah, very much so. In fact, I, 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 I touch on this on several occasions in the book because, you know, I don't like giving the impression that somehow, you know, we've, we're very smart, we've figured out everything we need to know about, about reality, uh, you just have to listen to us and we'll explain it all to you. Yeah, you're right, there's plenty of things, and, you know, I get asked all sorts of questions when I give um, uh, public talks on stuff that I have to say, hey, we really don't know yet the answer. You know, what is the nature of dark matter? What is dark energy? Are there parallel universes? Was there something before the Big Bang? How many and, dimensions and, uh, there actually, are? Because uh, different string theories have different numbers of dimensions. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, just the fact that the, the, the dimensions that we are aware of, three of space and one of time, are not enough, and there may well be six or possibly seven hidden dimensions in itself is something that you know the average person absolutely can't get their head around but it's the mathematics is powerful the mathematics is beautiful but we actually don't know yet whether it describes our real physical universe it may just be really cool math and a powerful tool uh, but 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 it, string theory we don't know yet whether it's the correct theory uh, of everything which is what we're looking for so there are plenty of, of mysteries around. I think the, the, the end of the 20th century, a number of physicists thought we were coming to the end of physics, that we just had to dot some I's, cross some T's. We were almost at the stage of you know, the equation that you could print on your T-shirt that covered all physical laws. Uh, we now realize that actually, no, we're quite a bit further away from that ultimate theory of, every, of, of everything than we thought, because there are plenty of aspects of, of the physical reality we haven't quite understood yet. Not to take away from what we've figured out so far, but there's still a long way to go. One of your uh, first chapters is about scale. You devote mm. a whole chapter to scale. Uh, why? Because physics uh, covers the smallest and the largest? Yeah, I think I wanted to get across the idea that unlike any other science, um, physics really... In the laws of physics and, and, the, and the, the principles and ideas that we have do seem to cover such a wide range from the tiniest distances to the vastness of the cosmos, from the blink of an eye to, 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 to eternity. Uh, something like Einstein's theory, general theory of relativity, which he developed 100 years ago, is a good example because it, it really does describe the tiniest, um, corrections in uh, a clock. So, you know, a G using GPS, for example, as a, as a good example, yeah. The way GPS works with a smartphone is that a number of satellites in orbit around the Earth are sending signals down to Earth, and your, your, your smartphone picks it up and, and is able then to triangulate your, your position. Well, that only works if you take Einstein's theory into account, because uh, the, the satellites in orbit around the Earth they feel weaker gravity than, than your smartphone on, on, at sea level, and that means the time aboard the satellite literally runs a little faster than time on Earth. And Einstein predicted this. You might think, oh, come on, how can, how, how can time run at different rates? A second's a second, right? But no, gravity can slow time down. And so we have to deliberately slow down the clocks on board satellites in order for them to synchronize the right rate of flow of time uh, uh, with Earth, in order to enable us, enable GPS to work. So tiny billionths of a second correction, predicted by Einstein's theory, turn out to be correct. But the same theory, the same mass, the same equation, tells you the Big Bang happened 13.8 billion years ago. So it, it, the, the sheer vastness, the scale at which some of these ideas apply, is mind-numbingly impressive. There have been some buzz recently over quantum computing, especially after announcements from IBM and Google. Mm. We're, we're getting there. I think, with, we, we, uh, I think uh, 
both IBM and Google will, will be the first to say we haven't yet built a, a proper, fully functioning quantum computer, but they've made, you know, and it's good that they're in competition with each other because they've made a huge amount of progress. 20 years ago, we, we, we weren't really sure that quantum computing was even possible. Uh, now we're pretty sure within a few years we'll have it. And, and quantum computers are going to revolutionize a lot of uh, science, a lot of technology. Uh, they won't replace our current computers that we use, but they'll be able to carry out tasks that are too difficult at the moment because they use the trickery of the quantum world. So we're talking about uh, size and scale from the vast universe down to the tiniest subatomic particle and from fractions of a second to, to billions of years. Uh, does physics give us a single unified picture of how everything works from the smallest to the largest scale? Oh no! If only <laughs> Einstein um, didn't he try? Didn't Einstein try to give us a grand unified theory? He he, he did. He tried and he failed. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, even on his deathbed, I think his his uh, his blackboard at the Institute for Advanced Study in, in in Princeton, New Jersey, still had his scribbles written down that he'd been working on the days before he uh, he, he finally died in in mid fifties. So yeah, for the last three decades of his life, he. He worked in vain to, to, to get a, a unified theory. He was trying to unify two of the forces of nature, gravity and electromagnetism. We now, of course, know there are two other forces inside the atomic nucleus called the strong and weak nuclear forces. And so a, a grand unified theory of everything would have to con incorporate all of these forces. We now have a, um, a framework for describing three of the four, the electromagnetic force, uh, the force between, say, electric charges um, and the two nuclear forces, they all come under the umbrella of um, quantum mechanics, quantum field theory, more correctly. So that's the, the theory of the very small describes three of the four forces of nature. The odd one out is the force of gravity, which is described by Einstein's theory of relativity, but it's a theory of the very large. And we don't know how to combine relativity theory with quantum mechanics yet. That's, that's the holy grail. That's what we've been trying to work on for, for over half a century. That's what string theory mm -hmm. is still hoping to be able to achieve. But by no means is it, uh, is it, are we assured that that's the correct theory. Haven't physicists disputed how testable string theory is? Uh, can you explain that debate and why testability is important in something like that? Yes. Um, so the, the Nobel Prize for Physics is only really it's only awarded to to uh, um, theoretical developments that have been subsequently confirmed by observation or experiment. So someone like Peter Higgs, whose name was given to the Higgs boson, he had developed his theory along with uh, with others back in the 1960s, uh, and he had to wait half a century for the Large Hadron Collider in in CERN in Geneva to finally detect the Higgs boson that his theory predicted, and then he's awarded the Nobel Prize. So developing a, a, a mathematical theory, in science we say it has to be, uh, the theory has to be falsifiable, which means you have to be able to show that it's wrong. Um, it has to be uh, uh, experimentally confirmed, and it has to be, that experiment has to be reproducible. So if someone says, yep, I've, I've carried out an experiment, I confirm this the theoretical idea is correct, that's not enough. Others have to do it as well to test, because th this, this is the way science develops, and it removes any sort of confirmation bias or uh, you know, the, the fact that people want th their theory to be correct. Uh, that's not good enough. So... Something like string theory is very highly mathematical, it's very abstract, um, and as yet, we don't know of a way of testing it and checking it. Uh, and uh, there are other ideas in, in fundamental physics in, in that sort of fall into the similar category, like multiverse theory, the idea that our universe isn't the only one. Um, it's, it's a neat idea, it has some very pretty maths that seem to, seem to work very well, but experimental evidence, as yet, we, we don't have. And, so, and what that has done, I mean, you, you mentioned the debate. We've seen a number of recent books come out popularized, popularizing physics, so aimed at the layperson, not 
sort of a debate between the specialists that have been quite critical of things like string theory. And you know, there have been authors who've argued that, you know, for uh, since the mid-1980s, a, a field like string theory has sucked a lot of talent into the field uh, to work on string theory, a lot of very, very smart people, and it hasn't really paid dividends yet. Uh, and they say, well, if only these guys, if they'd been working on some other area, I think how, what progress they would have made in a different discipline. Uh, and so there's a frustration that string theory hasn't yet been uh, confirmed. But on the other hand, it hasn't been falsified. You haven't said that it's wrong, and so it leads to fight another day. So the question is, is string theory really science if we don't have a way of testing it? I think it is. I think it's, it's, it's mathematically very powerful. It's certainly been useful and, and, and has provided some tricks that have given us insights into other areas of, of physics, actually. Nothing to do with, um, you know, 10-dimensional sort of uh, vibrating strings. Um, but it may be that in the future we will be imaginative enough to come up with a way of testing it. Let's not give, give up on it yet. I'm, I'm not a betting man, so I wouldn't say whether I think string theory will one day be proven correct or not. And there are certainly other rival ideas, rival theories, that, uh, that people hold up and say, no, that, that's a better way of describing, a better route towards a theory of everything than string theory. I think just time will tell. We just have to be patient. As you said, uh, after 50 years of searching in 2012, CERN announced uh, the, uh, the discovery of the subatomic particle, the, Hosen, the Higgs uh, boson, uh, had been observed in, in the Large Hadron Collider. Are physicists still observing other subatomic particles, or is that it? They're looking. Um, I think that one of the big surprises uh, uh, after the, the confirmation of the Higgs in 2012 was that we haven't found any other particles. Mm. Uh, when the Large Hadron Collider was being built and when the, the physicists were sort of going to their governments and, and asking for, for the funding to build it, the Higgs boson was held up as the poster child. You know, we're building this huge atom smasher because we want to discover this particle. So, so it really was uh, made out to be the reason for the Large Hadron Collider. And then when it was discovered, a lot of people said, oh, okay, so you found the Higgs, you're just going to sh shut up shop and, and go home? And then they said, oh, no, 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 no. You know, we've, we're hoping to find lots of other particles. And that really was the ambition not that many years ago. In particular, uh, physicists had been looking for evidence of, of uh, a, a, a mathematical property of the universe called supersymmetry. Uh, it's, it's a very abstract mathematical idea. I won't, I won't go into it, in, not least because I'm not an expert in that area. But supersymmetry super has to be in place if, for example, string theory is, is the correct theory of quantum gravity. Um, but supersymmetry, this abstract idea, also predicts the existence of new particles, supersymmetric particles. And the hope was that they would be detected in the Large Hadron Collider, and they haven't been. So I think that's a surprise for many physicists that uh, other than the Higgs boson, there's been nothing coming out of the Large Hadron Collider of, of real significance. Uh, it might mean supersymmetry is wrong. Uh, it might mean that, well, we're just, you know, uh, we're not looking in the right place. You know, the, the particles that collide at the LHC collide at certain energies, and that energy is then used to create new particles. Uh, maybe we're just not creating enough energy. But, you know, you can't just keep building accelerators larger and larger. Um, so we may have to be more imaginative in how we test some of these ideas and not simply smash particles together at ever higher energies. So although uh, there haven't been any other major discoveries from the Large Hadron Collider, uh, has it sparked any new, new questions? Well, it, it certainly meant that theorists are exploring other avenues uh, in, in, in the event that, you know, supersymmetry is wrong, or maybe we have to find other ways of testing our theories. But, but also, uh, there are other mysteries that have come about uh, in the last few decades that uh, we're struggling to try and understand. So um, two ideas, for example, dark matter and dark energy completely unrelated to each other, uh, both properties of, of the universe that uh, we now know um, uh, to be true, 
but we don't understand their origin. Dark matter is simply, is, I guess what it says on the tin, it's, it's, it's invisible stuff. Uh, we know it's out there because it's, uh, it has a gravitational effect. It holds galaxies together. Without this dark matter, galaxies would fly apart. And we think dark matter was needed in the early universe for galaxies to clump and form together in the first place under the force of gravity. But we still don't know what dark matter is made of. We know it's invisible. That just means it doesn't interact with light. So it doesn't interact with normal matter. So it's not made of the elementary particles that we know about already. It must be made of a new kind of particle. And, you know, we're, we're struggling to understand what that particle is. So we're not just trying to make these new particles in, a, in, a, in an accelerator like the LHC. We're also looking out into space and seeing if we can understand from the way light behaves near dark matter what it's made of. We're trying to capture particles of dark matter in special experiments that are designed deliberately to, to, to uh, send a signal if there's that very rare event that a particle of dark matter does interact with a particle of normal matter if it hits it sort of head on um so we're still looking uh, uh, the large hadron collider isn't the only uh, avenue for research uh, uh and and again it's a sort of source of frustration but in a in a sort of fun exciting sort of way you know we're not frustrated and you know in and getting angry about it it's it's fun that there are mysteries out there that we're trying to resolve dark dark energy is another um example We've only known about dark energy since uh, 1998. That a famous um, discovery by astronomers looking at the, the way the universe expands, and they were looking at distant galaxies and exploding stars, supernovae in those galaxies. And they can tell from the light from those exploding stars how far away the galaxies are and how fast they are stretching away from us as space expands. And that told them absolutely clearly as anything that the universe, the expansion of space in the universe is speeding up. And nobody expected that at all. So, you know, we, we don't down. just do experiments to confirm. Sorry? You would think that it would be slowing down. Exactly. So uh, certainly pre-98, certainly when I was studying physics uh, 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 as a student, that, that, was, that was the idea, that the universe may have expanded from an initial Big Bang. And, you know, we've known since Edwin Hubble in the 1920s that the universe is expanding and getting bigger. Everything's flying apart. But under the combined pull of the gravity of all the stuff in the universe, that should be putting the brakes mm -hmm. on the expansion. It's like stretching a spring, and it reaches some limit, and then it should ping back in on itself. So we said, well, if there's enough stuff in the universe... It'll slow gravity, it'll slow the expansion down, and maybe even one day cause the universe to re-collapse in on itself in the opposite of the Big Bang, what we call the Big Crunch. But since 1998, that's gone. That's, that's out the window. That's not even an option anymore because we know the universe is not going to collapse on itself. It's getting bigger ever more quickly. And therefore, what is causing that? What is winning the battle against gravity? Well, we think it's this thing called dark energy. And we're only now beginning to understand the nature of what dark energy actually is. It's the energy of, the, of empty space itself. So many, many more questions than we thought we had not that long ago that still need to be answered. We're talking about the current state of the science of physics on today's Leonard Lopate at Lodge on WBAI 99.5 FM in New York. So, what are we really made of? Dig deep inside the atom and you'll find tiny particles held together by invisible forces. Everything is made up of tiny packets of energy born in cosmic furnaces. The atoms that we're made of have negatively charged electrons whirling around a big bulky nucleus. The quantum theory offers a very different explanation of our world. The universe is made of 12 particles of matter, four forces of nature. We are back with Professor Jim Al-Khalili. His latest book is The World According to to physics. It is published by Princeton University Press. You discuss what you call three 
central pillars of our current understanding were three pictures of reality that come from three very different directions. Can you summarize them? Yes, very often um, when people talk about looking for a unified theory of everything, bringing together our, our current ideas all into one all-encompassing uh, um, principle or equation, uh, we tend to talk about just two pillars. Einstein's general theory of relativity, which is the theory of the very large, the theory of space and time itself, and quantum mechanics, the theory of the very small and the particles, the building blocks of matter. Um, I'm I'm not the only one here, you know, I'm not proposing something, uh, 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 you know, revolutionary here, but I think we're starting to, to appreciate that there's a third pillar that needs to be part of the story, and that is thermodynamics. Now, thermodynamics is the theory of heat, the theory of, of uh, order and disorder, um, uh, and it really gives us a very different view uh, of reality from quantum mechanics and relativity. And the example I use in the book is the meaning of time, you know, the nature of time itself, which, again, is a concept that, you know, humans have been struggling over for millennia, going back philosophers and theologians and thinkers, you know, what is the nature of time? What does time mean? And the truth is we still don't really have a, have a, a correct explanation. So these three pillars, you have relativity, you have quantum mechanics and thermodynamics, each of them gives a different perspective on what time is. So, for example, relativity theory tells us that time and space are unified into four-dimensional space-time. Is that what time I is another space-time? Sorry? Is that the uh, concept of space-time that, that Einstein Indeed. kind of invented, uh, introduced? With exactly. The theory of relativity? So, but, but before Einstein, it was, you know, you had three dimensions of space. Mm. That's the, the place where stuff happens, and then you have time. It just goes on by itself, and it ticks. You go a cosmic clock ticking by independently of space. Einstein comes along and shows that actually time and space are intertwined. They're part of the same fabric uh, in, in a way that, you know, you, you really do have to, like, have to do a course in relativity, as I'm actually teaching my current freshman year uh, uh, students at the moment, to appreciate what this means. But Essentially, relativity says time is another dimension. It can be stretched and squeezed and, and warped and in the same way that space can. So we have to always talk about four-dimensional space-time. So relativity says time is a dimension. Then you have quantum mechanics, and, and that's a very different structured mathematical theory. It's, it's the theory of the very small, the theory of particles and how they evolve and change and move in, in, in time. And it says that Time isn't part of, it's not a dimension, it's just a number that you plug into your equation. If I want to know what an electron is doing uh, in the future, I plug in the state of the electron now. So I've got to give it a time, which is now. Then I crank the handle, in, you know, solving the equation to evolve the state of the electron in time and work out where, where it'll be and what it'll be doing at some point in the future. But I could also have put in the state of, of, of the, the electron now and crank the handle the other way and work out what it was doing in the past. So in quantum mechanics, time is just a number that goes into the equation. That you can move things forwards and backwards in time. Everything is reversible. There's no direction to time in quantum mechanics. So, okay, so, so we have relativity. But, but we can't go into the dimension. Path. We can't go backward in time, can we? We can't go back, but the equations of quantum mechanics can tell us what a quantum state was in the past. So if you look at in, down at the quantum domain, particles uh, colliding, um, and, you, you, and you say you, you, you have a film of it, if you could, if you run the film backwards, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. So that's what I mean by it being reversible. Um, so in the quantum world, there is no direction to time. So you have time as a number in the quantum world, time as a dimension in relativity. But as you say, we have an experience of time flowing from past to future, that we remember the past, we predict the future. There's, a, there's an arrow to time, and that only comes from thermodynamics. So thermodynamics gives us these different definitions. It says time is an arrow pointing in one direction from past to future, from order to disorder, from uh, things at top of hills to rolling down to the bottom of hills, from clocks unwinding, 
from cream being stirred in coffee. Any of those things wouldn't work in reverse. You don't, you don't get the coffee and the cream <laughs> by continuous stirring, separating again. So, so here's these three pillars of physics, three important concepts. Each works in its own domain, but each giving a different definition of what time is. And if we're going to come, to a, come about and reach a theory of everything, we have to have a unified picture of, of what time is, and that means bringing in all three pillars together under one umbrella. I'm relieved that uh, I uh, find some comfort in Richard Feynman's comment when he said, I think I can safely say that nobody understands quantum mechanics. <laughs> yes, he was being very honest and, and actually very truthful. A lot of physicists, uh, physicists don't like to admit that. They, they think, you know, if you, if you claim you don't understand it, you should go away and do philosophy because, you know, we physicists have got it all figured out. <laughs> we haven't. <laughs> well, what about the speed of light, for example? Uh, uh, isn't there something very appealing about the idea that, well, everything is relative, but um, uh, Einstein's theory says that there is an ultimate speed limit, the speed of light. Now, why mm. can't we go faster than that? Well, it turns out it's, it's not light that is special. It's that speed itself that's special. The, uh, because of the way... So Einstein says time is the fourth dimension. Time and space are, are, are linked together. And they're linked together by this special speed. You know, speed is distance over time. Uh, and that maximum speed in our universe is a property of our space and time. Light happens to be able to travel at this maximum speed. So there, there, it isn't possible, in, I, although the speed of light is a number, it's it's uh, uh, well. I, I, I know it in, in kilometers <laughs> per second. Three hundred thousand kilometers per second. Um, was it one hundred eighty-seven thousand miles per second? I think is uh, in, in those units. You'd think, well, one hundred eighty-seven thousand miles per second. Why couldn't we conceive of one hundred eighty-eight thousand mm -hmm. miles per second? That speed is a limit beyond which the the laws of physics won't go. They'll break down. And um, there are different ways of explaining why. So one of them is, is, is the following example. Imagine a, a train that's traveling, getting faster and faster and approaching the speed of light. Now, Einstein's relativity tells us that as objects and masses get closer to the speed of light, they become heavier. Um, so, so a train getting faster is equivalent to adding another carriage to the train every time it gets a little bit faster. And as it gets closer and closer to the speed of light, you have to add more and more carriages. Therefore, it becomes harder and harder to accelerate it even further. It's, <laughs> the energy that you need becomes infinite at the speed of light. You'd need infinite energy to push something up to the speed of light itself. The only reason light can travel at the speed of light is because it doesn't have any mass at all. And so it doesn't have any carriages added to it as it, as it, as it gets faster. So, so the speed of light is a, is, a, is a maximum speed in our universe because it's defined by the way space and time weave together. Perhaps this is a stupid question, but if you were traveling at the speed of light and you turned on a flashlight, would that light move away from you at the speed of light? It's not a stupid question. It's exactly the question that Einstein himself asked, albeit when he was only 16 years old, apparently. Ah. <laughs> he, <laughs> he, he famously, um, he, he said, my if I were flying, <laughs> he said, if I were flying at the speed of light, holding a mirror in front of my face, would I see my reflection? Hmm. So it's a, very, it's a very similar example to yours with the flashlight. And when he developed his theory of relativity a decade later, he realized the answer was yes. Um, of course, you wouldn't yourself be able to fly at the speed of light, but let's say, you know, 99.999% the speed of light. That's allowed. Um, but Einstein's relativity theory has one of the, one of the two uh, postulates that he came up with in 1905 was that light travels at the same speed for anyone, regardless of how fast they're moving, because all motion is relative. And so if you're flying close to the speed of light, you would still see the light coming out of your flashlight at the same speed as it would if you were standing still. Because after all, 
who says you're traveling close to the speed of light? Relative to whom? You could equally well say, well, the, the reason I see the light coming out of my flashlight at the same speed is because I'm standing still and everyone else on Earth watching me is flying at the closest speed of light in the opposite direction. So all motion is relative means that you can't, no one can say the speed of light is any different. And so, so one of the founding principles of relativity theory is that the speed of light is the same for all observers. Of course, something has to give then, because that suddenly, that just suddenly sounds like nonsense. And what gives is that our concepts of space and time change. So the rate at which time goes by is different for different observers if they're moving relative to each other. But the speed of light, we will we'll all agree on, no matter how fast we're moving. I'm speaking with Jim Al-Khalili, whose latest book. How many books have you written? Uh, I guess coming close to a dozen, if you include two books that I edited. <laughs> well, this one is no, called... I didn't do all the work on them. <laughs> this book is called The World According to Physics. It's published by Princeton University Press. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. From your vantage point as a physicist interested in public engagement in the sciences, well, what's your sense of how the public's attitudes are changing toward physics or the science in general, we did a show recently about uh, a certain amount of, of hostility toward certain scientific things, and we've been talking about the, the word denial has often popped up in discussions mm. of science recently. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I can't say with any um, expertise what, what it is, it's like in the States, but over in, in, in Britain, it's funny, it's almost like you have two sort of separate camps. On the one hand, Science uh, communication is very vibrant. Uh, um, stations like the BBC make documentries. I, you know, I, I, pre I presented TV documentaries. I, I have a regular a radio show myself on, on BBC Radio. Um, there are a lot of popular science books. You've got the Internet providing so much access to scientific ideas. One of the things we've seen change in, in recent years, for example, you know, in, in uh, uh, news broadcasts, news bulletins, if there's a science story, uh, in, uh, not that long ago, the, the newsreader would come to it right at the end, and it'll be something like, and finally, mm -hmm. scientists in such and such a lab have discovered, and uh, with almost like with a smile on their face, as though, you know, what will these guys think up next? And it's, it, it wasn't part of mainstream news. Now that's changed. You know, we're dis discovering new planets, discovering new particles, uh, uh, advances in genetics, in artificial intelligence. All those things are now actually becoming part of the conversation. And I think science communication has matured to the extent that talking about scientific ideas, whether it's, whether it's sort of very esoteric things like quantum mechanics or whether it's more sort of grounded, uh, you know, issues about health, for example, is part of the mainstream popular culture. You'll talk about science in the same way around, you know, dinner tables or down, you know, in, in the bar with your friends. Maybe not quite to the extent yet that you'd be talking about football or baseball or, or movies or music or politics, but it's getting there. So oh. I think on, on that side, it's a positive. Yes. But you're uh, right. On uh, the news broadcasts have been talking about wildfires in Australia, space weather on the moon. That's a direct right. quote. Yeah. Gravitational yeah. lensing. Astronomers using a slime mold model to study the structure of the universe. But uh, in yeah. February, Boris Johnson replaced the British science minister, Chris Skidmore, with Amanda Soloway. Uh, she has no ministerial experience, no experience in the sciences, and never went to college. What does that appointment say about the state of the sciences in Britain? Yeah, I, it is a worry, absolutely. And, and also that, um, you know, we don't have many members of parliament with, with a scientific background. You know, the, 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 uh, uh, there are pseudo-scientific beliefs. Uh, we don't have the, the, uh, uh, such a, a problem with, say, you know, anti-vaxxers maybe, as you do in the States, or creationists. Um, but, but, yeah, it, it, it does tell us that those in power, those who are deciding on our, our future, don't understand the importance of listening to advice of experts, listening to the advice of people who come up with evidence-based suggestions and basing their policies on those. And, and it, it is a worry. Um, I mean, I think one would hope now with some, a crisis like the coronavirus, finally, you know, our prime minister and your president and, and others realize that, right, that we can't now 
take these things for granted. We do have to listen to these experts, the people who know what they're talking about, because there are lives on the line. So I think maybe when push comes to shove, they appreciate the value of science. But you know, you can't argue against um, you know a, a conspiracy theorist. If a conspiracy theorist says that you know the coronavirus is a is a bio weapon developed by China to attack the, the U.S. economy. What do you tell them to, you know, to, 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 uh, to explain that that's, that's, that's you know, false, fake news? Uh, it is difficult you know, to, to counter um, the anti-scientific sentiment. And I think it's partly because people are suspicious of science. Maybe they're afraid of it. Maybe they feel it's in the wrong hands. Uh, but science is, is, is knowledge. It's understanding the world around us. It's switching the light on. And I'd much rather have that than be groping around in the dark, believing in superstitious stuff. Is China uh, leading the way these days? It's, it's certainly catching up. It's not there yet. Um, it's certainly... Uh, um, we're seeing, for example, uh, you know, fewer um, students coming from, from China to study in Europe. Maybe you're seeing the same in the States mm -hmm. because the, the universities in China are much better quality now. Uh, they are investing heavily um, in scientific research. Uh, they've got a way to catch up with, with the States and, and Japan and Europe. But, you know, it's inevitable, I think. China is, is so big, so powerful, uh, <laughs> such a large population that as it develops economically, it will also develop scientifically. And, uh, you know, we would do well to... Uh, talk, you know, as scientists, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not talking about politicians and, and, and economists and, you know, where there are rival uh, uh, views, but and on a scientific level, absolutely we should be collaborating with Chinese scientists because they're doing some good work these days. Jim Al-Khalili is a University of Surrey professor of theoretical physics and chair in the public engagement in science. His latest book is The World According to Physics. It's, it is published by Princeton University Press. And Professor Al-Khalili, it has been a great pleasure talking with you today. Thank you very much for having me. It's been great fun. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to Hugh Sansom, who produced this segment, and to our live engineer, Reggie Johnson, and to our executive producer, Jesse Lent, for their invaluable contributions throughout the week. If you're new to our show and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're available as an iTunes podcast. And don't forget to check out Leonard Lopate at Large on Facebook and Twitter and on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com, where you can find links to all of our past shows. And we invite your comments on all of those sites. We're preempted on Monday for special WBAI programming, but we hope you'll join us on Tuesday when I'll be speaking to journalist Anna Bruce about her experiences reporting on uh, reconstruction efforts in southern Iraq. Actually, she played a major role in it, both uh, as a, uh, a member of the, the Red Cross and as a government advisor, and she worked with the U.S. military. Have a great weekend. We'll see you on Tuesday. <laughs>